This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. And what legal history allows me to do is study lots of different things. I mean, I can be a contracts lawyer or a torts lawyer or a law of war, international law person or a a public health person uh, or a civil rights person uh, in the course of a single week as I move through different fields of the law. And legal history as a field licenses me to do that. Welcome, everybody. Today I have with me John Fabian Witt the Alan H. Duffy Class of 1960 Professor of Law at Yale Law School. John, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So we have a lot to talk about. I want to start, if it's all right, with uh, one of your specialties, which is torts and regulation, where you've done a tremendous amount of scholarly work, uh, and you've also been extremely innovative on the pedagogy front. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the work you've been doing. Well, I guess there's... um two pieces to it. There's the scholarship and there's the teaching. And I, actually, right now, I'm pretty excited about the teaching and the way um, the way we've restyled and reorganized the torts course, so to torts and regulation, or as I like to call it, T-reg. Um, and what I found was that um, over time, the torts course had become a collection of 19th century railroad cases. Which you wrote a book about. Well, it's true. It's true. I love the 19th century <laughs> railroad because I would happily have gone on with that forever. But it turns out the 21st century student wasn't quite as excited about the 19th century railroad cases. And even those cases don't translate to the 21st century because of the regulatory overlay for railroads. Um, and so uh, more and more of the exciting cutting-edge tort stuff is it's either got a, a civil procedure dimension or it's got a regulatory dimension, a preemption dimension in particular. And so the project of the new course is to use torts principles to highlight the way in which the administrative state works, the interaction between tort and the common law on the one hand and the regulatory state on the other. In a way, it's what Guido did for the common law for the age of statutes, just you know, finally 30 years later becoming a course. Um, and so it really is in his, in his image uh, with, with all sorts of, of new bells and whistles. So one of the things I know that you've written about and talked about and teach about is the distinctive nature of torts in the U.S. system because of the way it's embedded in a broader institutional framework. I wonder if you could just say a few words about that. Well, I, you know, it turns out that, that um, and I, the comparative lawyers are going to get upset with me for in a minute, but um, you know, tort doctrine is basically the same all over the world. There's lots of distinctions, but the doctrine is pretty, it has lots of uniformity. But the U.S. tort system is radically different than other tort systems. Uh, as a share of GDP, the amount of money flowing the American, through the American tort system is much bigger than uh, any, other, any other country, on the order of you know, double and, and, and ten times. So what explains that? And it turns out it's the institutions, and it's the way in which mm, the plaintiff's bar and the jury and the liability insurance industry have produced a kind of privatized social policy system. And that's, that's, that's where my work is focused, and that's, I, I want to communicate a little bit of that to the students, in part because if they were to practice in this area, if they were to become aggregate litigation uh, mavens, that's the world they're going to be in. And there's some phrase I think that you use something like the new Paul's graph is arbitration. Is that mm. is that what is that how you say? That's interesting. I like that idea. I mean, it might be the new Paul's graph is settlement. I mean, settlement has been the thing. Um, you know, we, I like to point out to the students that we don't have any idea how big the tort system is really, because you don't have to file a single piece of paper in the public record to bring and and resolve a tort claim. 
You just need to send a letter to the other side that says, hey, we were thinking about filing a lawsuit, but why don't we split the cash we were going to spend on filing that lawsuit between us and cut out the middleman and make a deal? And so the way in which tort has become contract, lots of ways in which contract becomes tort too, famously, right? But um, the way in which tort has become contract through settlement is... Uh, is a huge part of the story. And so some of the course, I mean, some of the courses, the institutions and the sociology, some of the courses, game theory, trying to figure out what, what we can tell from the few pieces we can see of tort law, what we can tell about the way in which parties will be gaming out settlement uh, in, the, in the private sector, you know, invisible, invisible to us. So I know you have this entire set of teaching materials, which you've made available to everyone, which is fantastic. Um, you also, I think, added Title VII, a week on Title VII to torts, which is a little unexpected, I think, for the traditionalists. I'm curious if you could just talk about that. Yeah, so the two things, I would say the two statutory pieces that I brought into the course and into the casebook, um, which, as you say, is a Creative Commons casebook available to anybody, um, uh, is Title VII and preemption. And they played slightly different roles. I mean, preemption is uh, the centerpiece of the way in which the federal courts end up end up interacting with tort law. But I also wanted to persuade the students that tort principles were animating or deforming, one way or the other, you decide, the some of the statutory systems that are most important to the country right now and, and of great interest to the students. And so we actually have a series of modules in the casebook that come up every couple weeks throughout the course in which we watch tort principles go into Title VII um, and either screw up the doctrine <laughs> or, or, or animate it in ways that are useful. And so whether it's the reasonable person in harassment cases or whether it's interesting damages questions or proof questions or causation questions, there are all sorts of ways in which the law of discrimination is animated by um, you know, basic background tort common law principles. So I want to talk to us about scholarship. We're so glad to have you back in the law school full time. We were, of course, delighted that the university wanted you to be the head of a of a college, but we're really glad to have you back. So first, what was it like being head of the college? And isn't it so much better to be a scholar at Yale Law School? Oh, that's great. Well, you know, I'm really glad I did that job. It was a wild experience like no other uh, that the academy has to offer. I learned a lot. I met amazing students. You know, Heather, it turns out not everyone at the university is a lawyer. It was kind of extraordinary. No, I had I no idea. It. it turns out there are poets and there are physicists. And uh, well, We have those inside the law school. But that's true, too. That's what you're <laughs> true, too. Um, and uh, so I really had a great time. Um, uh, it is it is true that it made it hard to do the biggest projects that I, that I, that I want to do. And um, and so after five years, I was was happy to to transition back to um, uh, to the law school and glad that you all were willing to have me back. <laughs> um, uh, but it was really you know the the undergraduates are amazing at Yale College, and uh, it was a real pleasure to, to work with them. So you're finishing up a leave, which of course we all know in the academy is the worst phrase that you could ever use. But uh, I know you've been working on a book on the Garland Fund, and I wonder if you could just, I think not everyone knows what the Garland Fund is and who who the, the players were and what they were doing. I wonder if you could just kind of give the arc of the book. Yeah, I'm kind of in the, I would say the, you know, the last quarter, the, 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 the final the, the final minutes of my, um, of my, my, uh, my work on the, on the Garland Fund. And uh, this is an organization, it was a philanthropic foundation in the 1920s into the 1930s. Um, that uh, was started by a, mm, an idealistic, sometimes confused, honestly, um, um, heir of a Wall Street fortune who decided he didn't want the money that was coming to him. And Roger Baldwin, who had just founded the ACLU, and Upton Sinclair, author of The Jungle, got together, went to this young man named Garland, and said, Charles, well, why don't you take the money 
but give it to us and we'll do good things with it. And he was happy to do that. Uh, and so then Baldwin, for the next decade and a half, runs this foundation, kind of parallel to the ACLU, which he's running at the same time, uh, uh, and, and, but, but, but less known. And that foundation is well known to legal historians because they finance what becomes Brown Against Board of Education. At the end of the 1920s, uh, after a decade of experimentation, they finance uh, the litigation blueprint for Brown. But for that whole decade, they'd been working on dozens and dozens of other things. They were experimenting with labor education and labor mobilization. And class politics and inequality were actually their principal focus through the decade. Um, And so the puzzle that I'm trying to make sense of is what does it mean that these different forms of social mobilization were happening at the same time, class and race, together there in the, in the, at the end of the 1920s. And it's, um, it's been a, a vast project. It has me in labor archives and civil rights archives. It's taken me far too long, but it's, um, I think it's starting to come together. And it's really, uh, it's been an exciting, an exciting project. One of the things about doing it over time is that our times are changing. And I, I, I know, you know, the craft of history is a careful one, but I just wonder, as you take a step back, and look at what was happening then. Has has your view on this changed as we've had these just absolutely crazy four years or six years or eight years of, of time when those two questions are also circling around one another? Well, you know, I think of um, my education at Yale Law School in the 1990s. Um, you know, Brown Against Board of Education was a success story. Um, uh, there were, you know, really important critiques by people like Derek Bell and... Um, uh, but but the confidence with which a liberal law school, and I mean liberal in the broadest sense, um, uh, not the kind of narrow political sense of the, the late 20th and early 21st century, but a, but a law school interested in, in liberal cultural values would celebrate Brown against Board of Education. And, and for sure, over the last seven, eight years, the limits of that transformation, to the extent it was a transformation at all, are increasingly salient. And so I think it's one of the, um, it's at the heart of this project to figure out um, what it was about the the project that the Garland Fund initiates in the late 20s helped produce the successes such as they were and the tragedies such as they were of the kind of civil rights transformation that the United States engaged in in the middle of the, of the middle of the century. So can you say a little bit more about about what you mean by that? Well, um, uh, what the Garland Fund hits on at the end of its really the end of its its last big thing is a litigation campaign for school equalization. But what they mean by school equalization is an open-ended question. Uh, and what Brown Against Board of Education delivers is a something like a formal ban on segregation, de jure segregation, in American schools. But remember, the Garland Fund had been focused on inequality. The Garland Fund, for most of its time, 90% of its resources over the course of its, of its life as a philanthropic foundation went into inequality and labor causes. So the idea that they would end up with a project that is now critiqued widely among legal academics as having been overly formal and overly preoccupied with formal distinctions rather than substantive inequalities is really quite striking. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is reverse engineer the process by which this group of this group of radicals produced in the American legal system uh, a, um, a, a transformation, if that's the right word, that is so widely critiqued as having been insufficiently radical. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's interesting that you're also working on this project because we've had a, a burgeoning group of scholars working on what was called law and political economy for the people who are outside of, of um, law schools. And I wonder, as you think about the economic inequality piece alone, the other work that they were doing, does that look different now from this vantage point? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, you know, I think what happens for the fund um, is, you know, and there are a group of um, liberals and lefties uh, in in the twenties organized around labor, uh, and and they conclude by the end of the twenties that if they can't organize across race lines, they're not going to be able to organize a labor project. They need cross-race mobilization. Every time they launch a strike in a textile mill in the north, uh, there are strike breakers from the Great Migration, or the mill owner is just going to move south where the unions are weaker. And so what the project of school equalization started as was an extension of the labor education project that they were engaged in throughout the decade. The idea was that labor education for African Americans in the south could be a way of beginning that cross-race mobilization and cross-race organizing. Uh, and that's an LPE idea. You know, the, the law and political economy people are trying to figure out um, in totally brilliant ways. I'm, I think it's such a great new initiative, newish initiative uh, here and now elsewhere. They're trying to figure out how to reorganize um, uh, the, the economy in the United States, the law and the economy in the United States in a world in which there are divisions of class and also divisions of race. Uh, and, and, and so I think in some ways, these people in the 20s, I'm, I'm focused on Baldwin and his, his gang were, uh, were part of that. So you, you weren't just writing one book, you were writing two. I mean, during the epidemic, you wrote about ec- epidemics. And I wonder if you could just talk about that book. It's not hard to imagine what originated it, but I wonder what it was like to be experiencing a pandemic and then writing about pandemics. Yeah, that, that book, uh, American Contagions, came right out of my teaching. That was one of the great, um, I mean, honestly, the thing that I've liked best about being here is working with students. Opportunities to work with students in the classroom and outside are just, they're just super exciting. And in my legal history course in the spring of 2020, uh, uh, we were puttering along like everybody else, doing what we usually do. And then all of a sudden when the epidemic hit, I felt obliged to add an epidemics unit. I mean, there's a, the law of epidemics, as we now know, is a vast subject. And in the world before antibiotics, it, I mean, the law of epidemics was like a central, central feature, such that, you know, um, uh, the jurisprudence of hygiene, as it was called, was a central feature of the American legal system. And so I did a, a Zoom lecture, which some students helped me produce slides for. We tried to kind of make it a um, a multimedia production for the course. Uh, Yale Press got wind of the lecture and asked me to write a fast book. And you know, there I was around the dining room table with my two boys doing virtual school. And so I was like, sure. And so that's what, that's what I did over the course of the next eight weeks. It was an eight week. If, if the Garland Fund book has been a 10-year book, that was the eight-week book. Um, it was a pretty damn good book for eight weeks. Well, it was, um, there's a lot of space between the words if you look carefully. But, but, um, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, and it was, a, it was a revelation. I mean, the... The, the way in which um, American law has had to deal with epidemics going back, you know, as long as there was law, um, uh, was was really uh, totally fascinating. And the the building of a regulatory state around the problem, the collective problem of epidemics and contagion, was um, a fascinating story. No, I totally agree with you also about the joy of uh, teaching and writing with students. So there's actually a beautiful piece 
which features you uh, in the Yale in, in our alumni magazine this this coming season, which is about co-authoring and just how great it is because we sort of welcome students into our intellectual project. So so let's maybe we could talk a little bit about the co-authoring that you've been doing. I mean, that piece is a beautiful piece about the work you've been doing. I wonder if you might say a, a little bit more. Well, well, you know, a couple years ago, five six years ago, it it uh, it dawned on me that students could be force multipliers. I mean, I just the the, the constraints on time are just brutal and um uh and the having such talented students around means that maybe i could share some ideas with them and just set them off um and sometimes that's meant supervising papers that students publish and that's great and sometimes it's meant co-authoring with students and i've i've let ras and students with homeworking kind of set the set their path do you want to work on it together do you want to do it on your own with my supervision and um, it's produced a whole bunch half dozen now co-authored papers with students over the last three, four, five years. Um, just last night, I was finishing up edits on a piece coming out in Cardozo Law Review in the spring with a student who graduated last year, um, Morgan, Morgan Savage, class of 23, uh, 22, I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been really great. It's been really great. It lets me produce more than I could otherwise, and I think is a good experience for the students, too. I hope, hope so, anyway. Oh, I love. I mean, I love doing it. It's it's also just a way to launch another generation of academics. Let them sort of experience how fun that is. Um, so I've actually been working on it. Columbia's publishing a piece mm. with a author of mine, although I'm embarrassed to say he wrote his half about five years ago. Right, and, right, right, right. and I have been a laggard right, and right. just caught up with him on it. So, John, can I just talk a little bit about the field of legal history? So it's one of our signal strengths that we just have an extraordinary group of legal historians. Although, as I always tell people, what's interesting about our legal historians is they're all polymaths. And so they're wide-ranging intellectually. They're able to sort of speak in the cadence of lawyers and normative and theoretical work. And they're excellent at their craft. And that's actually a a rare combination. Uh, uh, And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the group that you work with and then just how you think about the field itself. Well, I, I love I love my colleagues, and they are polymaths. I think, honestly, in my case, Heather, it's less polymath, and it's more that I, I don't understand much of anything. And and what legal history allows me to do is study lots of different things. I mean, I can be a contracts lawyer or a torts lawyer or a, a law of war, international law person or a, a public health person uh, or a civil rights person uh, in the course of a single week as I move through different fields of the law. And legal history as a field licenses me to do that. I hope nobody realizes what a kind of, you know, um, uh, um, a bankrupt license it is. I wrote about bankruptcy's history too. Um, and uh, and what it does is it lets me as if, a little like the parable of the blindfolded scholar trying to make sense of the elephant. I mean, I, I, eventually, if I stick with this long enough, maybe I'll have made my way around the elephant <laughs> enough times to have some sense of the of, of, of the whole. I wonder, I have just two questions. So one, one for people who aren't deeply steeped uh, in in the academy, they may not know how how much of a chasm there is in the crude sense between historians and their reluctance to engage in normative analysis and lawyering, sort of the lawyering impulse to find a lesson in everything. And what is it? What's the payoff? What's what does it mean for today? I, I remember once in a legal theory workshop, we had a, a really excellent historian working on the history of coverture post, post-Civil War. And she looked around and said, well, there are a lot of lawyers in this room, so maybe I'll just admit it. I'm against coverture. Uh, you know, you sort of want to say, well, great. Um, but, but I wonder how you think about that sort of crude divide uh, and in sort of keeping up with the dictates of your craft, but also doing the work uh, of legal scholarship? 
Yeah, it's true that there's a temptation to say, oh, well, the history was X, therefore Y today. And almost always that that syllogism fails. I mean, it just doesn't follow from the fact that once things were this way, therefore they should be, be that way. And that creates a challenge for the person oriented around the past in the legal academy, for sure. But it also turns out, and I think, you know, uh, um, students and my colleagues all over the law school uh, now um, understand that to, to operate without a sense of the past is a sense, in some sense, to, to walk without having any idea where you're going. Uh, and um, Eric Foner at Columbia often describes the person who doesn't know history as like, like an amnesiac. And it's hard, it's hard to make change in the world uh, from, from that kind of a, of a position. And so um, the historical work helps us make sense of where we've been and where we might go, uh, like a blueprint for, um, for figuring out paths into the, into the future. Yes, and Stephen Greenblatt, the Shakespeare scholar, was here. He was writing about Macbeth, but it really seemed more like a conversation about the Iraq War. And he said that in some ways writing about Macbeth helped him think about the Iraq War. Do you find that with your source materials as well? Well, you're never you're never out of the present, right? That is, in some ways, we're always already presentists. It's it's uh, it's it's unavoidable. Um, and you know, sophisticated historians know that too. I think in the law school world, it it um, it's especially salient. Um, of course, the reasons I took up the law of war in a book about a decade ago was because of the things following uh, the, the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and of course, the reason I'm trying to work through the Garland Fund and its significance is that here we are again in a moment of deep class inequality and real uh, race justice problems. Um, and uh, uh, so, so the present is always salient in the work. That makes it exciting, makes it interesting, engages students. Um, and uh, uh, and the, being on the edge between history and law is... is um, that, that's, that's where I like to be. Torts, torts and regulations isn't the only place where you've been innovating on the pedagogy front. So you also built out a completely new course about the foundations of legal theory. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about it. We suspended it during COVID, uh, but we're going to kick it back in now that, that we're back in person. And I wonder if you could just say what that course is. Uh, so, so the foundations of American legal thought has been—it's been a group project. Uh, you know, there's maybe four or five of us who've gotten together and um, and helped to produce a new course. We taught four of us taught it uh, in the spring of 21, um, uh, and so in some ways we we were doing it through through COVID in one way or, or or another. And the idea is to take a course that has the classics of American legal thought, the things that you can't be a sophisticated American legal theorist without knowing. But also update the canon as well. You know, canon wars famous uh, um, in the academy, and so you know we uh, had readings ranging from uh, classics going back to Oliver Wendell Holmes and the Realists on the one hand, to Kate Manny and and and, and uh, uh, philosophers and theorists of the 21st century, um, and all sorts of things in between. And it was a, a, just a great experience. Um, uh, wonderful to work through the best ideas uh, and, and, and argue about them with, uh, with students. It really, it's, just, um, it's been a real, a real pleasure. I imagine for some of those things, you haven't read them in a while because, you know, because they're classics, right? You read them early on in your career. When you circle back and talk to this generation of students, do you see things that are different in them? Yeah, for sure. Everything looks different. I mean, I think um, in particular, uh, reading Catherine McKinnon, with um uh, with a group of students in a post me too moment or a mid me too moment uh, uh, as it as it might be I mean that was um a really interesting thing to engage in part because it's now you know, 35 years old 
uh, that work. I mean, uh, um, it was both far-seeing and and um, and 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 still controversial and electric uh, today. And so, um, whether it was Catherine McKinnon or our colleague Gerald Torres, who both we both read Gerald Torres and had Gerald Torres as one of our as one of our your Marsha McLuhan moment in the right, class, exactly. Or or the the early law and economic stuff. I mean. Um, uh, you know, reading reading Coase and Posner and Calabresi after the financial crash of the 2008-2009 moment that I think really left an impact on the, this generation of students' intellectual lives. It's um, it was just it was just it was just it's an awesome an awesome course, and I'm going to be teaching it again. I think in the spring of 24, uh, hopefully pulling a few colleagues in and looking forward to that. When do you find time to do your writing? Mm, leaves are good. Leaves are good. Summer is good. Um, I think now, what am I? I'm like 20 years into this. And honestly, I don't have a good, <laughs> honestly, I haven't really figured it out. I think that um, uh, if, I, if I had a practice, I would say that, that, that teaching semesters are semesters in which I do a lot of research. There's a lot of logistics, just gather just the archival work. I mean, I've got a whole email backlog right now of like archives with whom I'm working to get documents and um, and so working with RAs and uh, with, with archives during semesters of teaching and then using the summers and, uh, and then the occasional leave semester to try to, get the, um, try to get the writing done. Rumor has it that baseball has something to do with it. There is some baseball stuff, yeah. yeah, what, yeah. What's the baseball <laughs> angle? <laughs> uh, well, uh, first of all, there's, there's the Yankees and the Phillies, and they are uh, obsessions. Some people think uh, David Schleicher and Tai Su Zhang tell me that I can't have both of those, but, but I do. I do. So I, I prove them wrong every day. But then most of all, it's my, my 13-year-old who's a, a, baseball, um, a baseball lover and player. And I mostly follow him all around the Northeast with, uh, with James Foreman and his son in tow. So, um, yeah. Do you actually write on occasion during the game? It is true that I am known for bringing large canvas sacks full of books, setting myself up in a, a kind of um, an elaborate armchair operation I have out in right field and uh, and working my way through the game. I think the other parents have no are a little confused. <laughs> they have no idea what I'm, what I'm doing. <laughs> have you ever gotten so deep into the work that suddenly a, a, a you know fly ball is out your way? There there have, there have been moments of of real danger. Yeah, it's, that's why I'm now in right field. I was a little too close to home plate before. And that, that, that dangerous. <laughs> Well, John, thank you so much for joining this podcast. It's just been a wonderful conversation. It's been a real pleasure talking. So glad to have you here.